All right, we're going to go ahead and get started, um, in part because it's time, in part because I think I have way too much material, and we'll see how much we can get through. But uh, we're continuing through this uh, through a class on Brad Hambrook's book, Making Sense of Forgiveness. Uh, we're almost finished, so um, we're going to cover a bit more material today. Next week, we'll, um, we'll wrap up. Uh, the book. So today's, the title of today's uh, class, and there's handouts in the front and back if you, that's all right, um, if you need them. Uh, today's class is making, uh, moving toward closure. And uh, let me pray and then I'll, I'll tell you what we're going to talk about and then we'll jump in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your gift of forgiveness to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to, to live in that forgiveness, to rejoice in it. We also pray that you would help us as we work through uh, this difficult topic of forgiving those who have hurt us. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us uh, clarity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, closure, the word closure is in scare quotes in order to scare you. Um, no, not really, but be, the reason it's in scare quotes is um, closure is more complicated than we usually think. And so, um, you know, TV sitcoms, they wrap up in 30 minutes. You know, there's this huge, huge issue. And then, you know, by the end of the show, after a few commercials, everything's, you know, happy again. Uh, movies take a little longer, maybe two hours. Um, but Brad Hambrick says forgiveness doesn't come with a timestamp, and so we've we've talked about this as we've been working through this topic that um, forgiveness is a, a journey, um, and it, it takes time. And when it comes to the timing of forgiveness, there's two things we we have to keep in mind. Uh, the first is we don't want to be rushed to forgive, and that, that's been a lot of what we've talked about so far, that we want to forgive wisely, we want to understand when it's appropriate to forgive, when it's appropriate to hold off on um, extending the gift of forgiveness until you know the, the person who's hurt us is ready to own up to what they've done and so forth. So we don't want to be rushed, but there's a second principle we have to keep in mind, and that is we don't want to be stuck in a state of unforgiveness. So um, neither of those is desirable, moving too quickly or not moving at all. So the goal is to travel toward forgiveness. So if you use the journey metaphor, there's a, a road, a path we're walking on. We want to make progress on the path. We don't want to you know, sprint to the end, and we don't want to just, you know, plop down and say, not moving another inch. Um, we we want to walk that path without rushing um, unwisely. So two, t- two issues we're going to um, talk about today. Uh, the first is uh, forgiveness and emotional freedom. So we'll talk about um, the relationship between those two ideas, forgiveness and emotional freedom, and then if we have time, um, if we don't get to it today, I'll, I'll get to it next time. Um, we'll talk about the idea of love covering a multitude of sins. So you know that statement in First Peter chapter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. Um, what does that mean? We'll, we'll talk about it if we have time today. 
But first, uh, forgiveness and emotional freedom. Um, we've, we've said this in, in various ways throughout, but l- let me say it again. Um, emotional freedom does not, it's not the same as always having pleasant emotions. So we can, at the same time, we can live with emotional freedom, and, and specifically I'm talking about when somebody's hurt us and the process of forgiveness has taken place, we've extended forgiveness. We can live with emotional freedom and experience unpleasant emotions. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, and we're going to explore um, what that looks like uh, today. Five Five ways that forgiveness and emotional freedom interrelate. Five ways they're related. Um, the first, emotional freedom exists on a spectrum. So this is true of, of any emotion we have. Uh, the, the intensity of any emotional experience can vary, right? You can be less mad or more mad. You can be less sad or more sad. You could be less happy or more happy. I've never experienced the more happy part, so I'm just taking it, you know, I'm assuming that can happen. No, I'm kidding. Um, the, The same is true for emotional freedom after granting forgiveness. Um, you know, there, there can be more or less emotional freedom. Ideally, over time, the, it's moving towards the, the more side of the spectrum. But we tend to uh, um, measure growth uh, against where we would like to be. So we're here, and we want to be, you know, three more miles down the path of emotional freedom, and we get discouraged because there's this gap between where we are right here and where we know we we want to be in terms of emotional freedom. Um, and so we get discouraged because there's still so much more, uh, there's so much further we have to go. It's important when we think about emotional freedom after forgiveness, it's important to measure where you were. You know, you think back to the beginning of this whole, the hurt that happened and the process of coming to the point where forgiveness could be extended and where you are now, it's important to measure where you were and where you are now and to be encouraged by progress that's already been made. That, that's, that's big. Um, so when we talk about emotional freedom, um, there's really two measures we need to keep in view. Yes, the, the long game, kind of where we want to be, the future, but also... Um, the progress that's already been made. So we want to measure both, you know, the past and where we've come from and and where we need to go. Um, We don't want to focus unduly on one to the exclusion of the other. So uh, emotional freedom exists on a spectrum. Uh, Second, freedom means the absence of mental preoccupation. So Hambrick says, before we forgive, the offense against us is central in our emotions. And, and you probably have experienced this. Um, somebody has hurt you in some way, and there's all kinds of things that remind you of, of that offense, all kinds of things that remind you of whatever it is 
uh, that person did. You know, there, there may be certain words that just, you hear them and all of a sudden you think about that situation and it's like you're living in it, you're living in it real time. The, the pain is real. It could be places, smells, uh, sounds, all kinds of things. And the reason for that is our, our memories, our memory works by association. We, we connect, you know, an experience with, um, often the, the environment of, you know, what was going on around us at the time that hurt happened. Um, let, let me give you an example. When I was about eight or nine years old, um, I was getting ready for bed, and I walked over to my bed and pulled down the covers, and there was a snake in my bed. <laughs> not, a, not a poisonous snake or anything, but a snake. And I don't like snakes, and um, I, I'm more comfortable with them now than I was at eight years old, but uh, it freaked me out. And so for a while, um, for me, bedtime, especially the idea of like pulling my covers down, was associated with snakes. <laughs> bedtime equals snake time. <laughs> and so it was always, you know, an uncomfortable... Stephanie's back there laughing at me. Um, you know, it was always an uncomfortable time. Like, oh, I got to get ready for bed. Is there going to be a snake there again? Um, I think it was Halloween that day, and I had had some friends over, and I think they may have planted the snake there. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, our memories work by association. So I had this, you know, in my memory, there's this link between bedtime and snakes. Now, it's hard to disassociate things from memories. It's, it's hard to completely cut the association, in my, in my example, um, in my case, between bedtime and snakes. But we can decentralize experiences. Um, what, I, what I mean is, I still remember what happened. Here I am many years later, and I can still like, picture the bedroom. I can, I, you know, I can still put myself in that situation. I remember what happened, but it's not um, the snake being in the bed is not uppermost in my thinking any longer. So um, when I get ready for bed now, I don't, it doesn't even cross my mind that, um, that there could be a snake in bed. Maybe now that I've talked about it, there will be. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's hard to completely cut the association, but it is possible to make it less central in our in our lived experience, and so let me let me connect this to forgiveness. Um, Hambrick says, forgiveness means that Christ's payment for sin is more central to how we remember our pain. So what Christ has done through His death and resurrection to to pay for our sins and the sins of those who have harmed us. Is, is more, becomes more central to how we remember the story of our pain. And, um, you know, again, caveat, we've already talked about how forgiveness does not mean you, you cease to experience any pain. So keep that in mind. I'm not saying all pain gone forever. But uh, I, Hembrick talks about forgiveness introduces a plot twist. And we're going to talk more about this in the second point, about love covering a multitude of sins. But uh, it introduces a plot twist. And what he means is grace becomes more prominent than the hurt. doesn't erase the hurt, but it becomes more prominent in our, 
in our lived experience and how we think about the situation than the hurt. And so using this financial metaphor, uh, there's two ways to remember a debt. You know, the debt's either paid or unpaid. Um, and when we say, I forgive you, we're, we're saying that Christ has paid the relational debt on, on your behalf, on behalf of the person who hurt us. That, that's, when we say, I forgive you, it's not just empty words. We're saying uh, we're Christian people. We're understanding this in the context of, um, of the gospel. And we're saying, when I say to a brother or a sister in Christ, I forgive you, I'm saying, Christ, I can forgive you because Christ has died for your sins. He's paid that debt. So no longer tracking a debt, you know, no lo- in this relationship, I'm not constantly thinking, you know, how much left do they, you know, how much is there left that they need to pay? You know, have they done enough to, have they, um, you know, restored what they've taken, all that? If I'm, if I'm thinking Christ has paid the debt of their sin, there, there is emotional freedom in that. I'm, I'm not constantly gauging, you know, how much money is left for them to pay back. But there's also more to our relationship with, um, with, the, with the person than their offense. Um, so continuing that uh, financial metaphor, if, if forgiveness has, the transaction of forgiveness has happened, there's still a relationship, um, that relationship is like doing business together. So keeping the you know, financial business metaphor. The relationship is like doing business together. And after forgiveness, there's a, a line of credit between us called wise trust. We've talked a lot about wise trust over the, over the weeks. There's this line of credit. And so forgiveness gets the, the offending party uh, from indebted to break even. Wiped out the debt, break even point. And, and that gives us, the, the, the offended party, um, enough emotional freedom to live in the present, meaning we're not stuck back there, what happened in the past, the hurt, um, where the pain, you know, we're not stuck in this position where the pain is the most prominent thing in our, in our minds. Now that forgiveness has happened, uh, the person's repentance is more central than their offense, so, you know, in the past, it's just, you know, what's uppermost, what, what is even the most critical issues, they, they've done this thing and it needs to be addressed. Now they've, you know, they've repented, forgiveness has been granted. Now, in our relationship with them, the, the uh, what should I, I don't know if I'd say the degree of the repentance, the reality of their repentance, the sincerity of the repentance, the evidence of their repentance are what, those things are more central now. So we begin to extend wise trust to the person. We extend a line of credit as the fruits of repentance emerge. And, and you know, if we've talked a lot about wise trust and extending trust and what all that looks like in previous weeks. But um, all that to say, forgiveness um, allows us to, to live in the now of who this person is, uh, a repentant person seeking to own up to what they did and, and live the new life in Christ. We're, we're relating to them in the now of who they are rather than what, what the past of what they did. So um, 
Freedom means the absence of mental preoccupation, preoccupation with the hurt. Again, caveat, not saying the hurt never surfaces, never, never gets experienced again. Um, third, freedom means responding to new events on their own merit. Uh, responding to new events, new situations um, on their own merit. So let's say a friend lied to you. And you feel hurt, understandably so. Um, and now you not only don't trust the friend who lied to you, uh, you begin to be suspicious of everyone else. You, you think, this person who was so close to me turns out to be a liar. Um, all these other people probably the same way. And you, you put on now um, a new pair of sunglasses called mistrust. And the lenses on these sunglasses are tinted a, a slightly different color than you used to wear. So now they're, they're, ten, they're tinted with um, the mistrust color, whatever that is. Um, and so now you, you see everything through those lenses. Every person, uh, you know, automatically, you know, the, the deck is stacked against them. Um, maybe the person who offended you and, um, and to whom you, you granted forgiveness, if you're, you're, you're still living, kind of struggling with it, uh, you know, everything they do is viewed through the lens of, of what happened. Um, forgiveness helps you remove those, those mistrust sunglasses from, from the other areas of your life. Um, and what I mean is, you know, someone hurt you, and you realize now people who are close to you can hurt you. So you're not naive, or maybe not as naive as you were. You, you've, you've entered into the world of, of relational conflict, relational complexity, and you realize, okay, um, this person can, can hurt me, but um, being less naive does not mean you, you have to be entirely cynical. Um, uh, let me give you another example. Um, this isn't related to forgiveness, but I, I think you'll see the connection. Um, let's say you know a, a child gets um, bitten by a dog, neighborhood dog, and you know, and maybe this has happened to you. Um, for a time, this this child she sees every dog as a threat. You know, the um, maybe the wound from the the dog bite hasn't even completely healed yet, and so every time she sees a dog, you know, the the pain just starts uh, radiating throughout her body. Um, she doesn't trust any dog, even dogs that you know look completely different than than the one that bit her. Um, but over time, um, she has some positive experiences with with other dogs. You know, uh, some interaction where the dog was friendly and it ended pleasantly, no no bites, and so she learns to be more comfortable around dogs. Now. She's not careless, this, this girl who got bit. She knows she needs to kind of, you know, um, be careful around dogs. She knows some dogs can hurt, but she's willing to respond to each dog she meets individually. So in other words, she doesn't, you know, if it was like a big Doberman pincher that bit her, she doesn't see the little chihuahua as the Doberman. <laughs> She just sees it as, well, here's this chihuahua. Maybe he's nice, maybe he's not nice. I'll find out. <laughs> and she, she 
she's willing to to interact with that that dog um, on its own. You know, if it turns out to be nice, great. If it turns out to be a little, you know, little little yapper who bites your ankles, <laughs> stay away. Um, but uh, emotional freedom re- means responding to new events on their own merit. Does that make sense? Um, it, it means that you're increasingly able to to live in the now, um, or you could even say in the post-forgiveness um, reality. Um, number four, uh, freedom means the ability to engage new tasks and to take wise risks. So uh, new tasks, wise risks. Um, you know, when you're stuck in in unforgiveness, um, you're reluctant to take emotional and relational risks. And, and it makes sense to some degree. Um, an emotional risk, a relational risk, um, resulted in hurt. And so we tell ourselves, well, I'm not going down that path again. I'm not taking those risks. The, the pain, you know, it's too much. I, I've already tried that. It didn't work out well. And and what happens is we're you know we're stuck in this state of um, unforgiveness and we're not willing to to take those risks. Um, our relational muscles begin to atrophy. You know it's it's like we're we're laid up in bed with a a broken leg for weeks on end and over time you know the muscles in the leg begin to atrophy become weak um, because you're not using the the those muscles. And what ends up happening. When we, you know, just kind of we stop taking any um, emotional or relational risk, um, anger can become a dominant emotion, almost like a re- a reflex response to any situation that that even hints at risk. So it's like as soon as you know this this conversation with another person even sounds like something. Um, the the person who hurt me has said, all of a sudden I, I get angry, blow up at them, um, and it, it's 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 a way to protect ourselves. You know, if we have this internal threat detection system, and it's alerting us to potential danger. Remember, I talked about memory um, uh, works by association. I heard something that sounded like what the the oppressor had said to me, even though this person's a different person, um, never done anything like that to me, but I heard something, made me think of that hurt. Now all of a sudden my threat detection system is saying, hey, you're on the verge of getting hurt again. This person's going to treat you the way they, uh, that other person treated you. And um, all this is usually going on without us even kind of being consciously aware of it. And, and we go into fight or flight mode. You know, the heart's beating really quickly, mind's racing. Uh, you get that tingling sensation in your, your legs or your, your hands. And, and you're just like, I, I need to get away from this threat. And maybe in this case, the, the answer is anger. I'm going to lash out at them, and then they're going to go away and leave me alone. Um, living out forgiveness uh, requires two things. Um, situational awareness and self-awareness. <clears throat> situational awareness, self-awareness. 
Um, situational awareness helps us identify um, situations, whether that's um, an experience, an activity, or, or some kind of relationship, interaction with another person. It helps us identify <clears throat> you know, situations that require some degree of risk. So um, an example, if, if the hurt that, whatever this hurt is, um, if the hurt that you had experienced from someone was associated with rejection, then a risky situation for you is going to be a situation where you have to voice your opinion about something. Because, you know, it could be in a, a meeting at work, you know, your, your supervisor asks you what you think should be done about some problem, or it could be voicing an opinion with a spouse or a friend, um, whatever it might be. What's the risk of voicing your opinion? Especially if you've been hurt before for say, giving your opinion about something. The risk is the person may say, you're an idiot. Or the person might say, that's a ridiculous idea. Why would you even suggest that? Or the person might not actually intend any harm. They just don't make a big deal out of you know, your opinion. They, you know, the work meeting, they turn to the person next to you and say, well, what do you think? And, and inside you're going, they have rejected me. They want nothing to do with me. They think I'm an idiot. They, they don't respect me when in reality they were just trying to get everybody to give, you know, give everybody an opportunity to say what they thought. But, you know, situational awareness helps us realize in a situation, helps us give a name to the risk. You know, you're sitting there in the, in the company meeting, and you, you're, you're able to tell yourself, you know what? Um, this is the kind of situation where I might be called on to share my thoughts, and that has been um, a dangerous situation for me in the past, and I know that right now, um, even though this is a different context, different situation, I'm going to start feeling like I'm about to be rejected. And, most li- and if I don't respond in a certain way or, or recognize that, I, I'm liable to just like freaking out on these people. Um, you know, it, without being able to name that risk, uh, that internal threat detection system, it starts mobilizing the troops. It starts going into high gear and is like, I need to protect self right now, and we don't even re- we don't even realize it till after all the damage is done. <laughs> you know, until after. You know, we've, we've hurled a few grenades into the relational um, battlefield and, and there's just, you know, chaos and carnage everywhere. And then we're like, oh, 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 yeah, that, that, that was a bit of an overreaction. Um, so situational awareness helps us say, okay, here's what's going on here. Here's why I, I feel that, you know, that kind of um, I'm anxious, I'm... I feel just like, you know, all this adrenaline pumping through me. What's going on? Oh, because there's a risk here called the risk of rejection for sharing my opinion. That's one, one thing that's, that's helpful, self, uh, situational awareness, but also self-awareness. So self-awareness helps us name the, the emotion that's, that's underneath the anger. 
So um, often, in, in like these kind of scenarios that I'm painting, the, the anger is just kind of like the presenting symptom, and there's something underneath it. There's another emotion or some kind of other response underneath it that the anger is just a mask for. So uh, let me give you an example again, uh, using that, that rejection scenario. So if the hurt you've experienced in the past um, involved rejection, it's associated with rejection, then the, the internal response, when you're in that situation where you're called on to share your opinion and you start getting angry, the, the actual um, real kind of root cause of that is, is not that the person who's asking for your opinion is so um, unreasonable and judgmental and all that that, that anger is the appropriate response. What, what's really going on or could be going on is embarrassment. You're like, ah, if, if, if I say the wrong thing, they're going to laugh at me. Um, it could be insecurity. You know, I, I don't have great ideas like all my other coworkers sitting here, and I'm really nervous right now because if I say what I think, they're all going to know I'm a fraud. And um, you know, there, there's usually something else underneath the the anger. The anger is just a mask. You know, it's it's the easy way to kind of just be done with the situation and protect yourself. So. Um, Situational awareness, self-awareness, um, they, they can prevent that internal threat detection system from just hijacking your, your emotions. It, it can bring a, a degree of um, calm and self-control and, a, and the ability to reflect on the situation and even um, what's going on inside you. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, thinking about what you're thinking. Or thinking about what you're thinking about, you know, often there's just this, you know, there's this uh, playlist going on in our heads of self-talk, and we're not even aware that it's happening. And um, this situational awareness, self-awareness, can help us um, think about what's going on for the purpose of engaging new tasks and taking risks. Um, so being able to to live um, in the moment and and do new things um, instead of living in that fight or flight or freeze mode, you know. All right, um, number five. Emotional freedom is comparable to healthy grief. Uh, it's comparable to healthy grief. So um, broken record, emotional freedom isn't the same thing as always feeling good. You know, we, we've said that numerous times. Um, you can be emotionally free in, in regard to this hurt, that, that you've experienced and still have unpleasant emotions at times. And um, Hembrick says it, it, freedom can feel like grief. And so he says, grief is when you accept that an unwanted thing has happened. For example, the death of a loved one. It's when you accept that an unwanted thing has happened and you quit fighting against that reality. So in other words... Um, Grieving the death of a loved one um, means that you feel sad sometimes. Um, you know, the anniversary of their death comes and, and you feel the feels. Uh, their birthday or um, Christmas or, you know, some other uh, family holiday or something. 
and and you feel grief you feel sadness there you know there's this empty seat at the dinner table and you remember when this person used to be there but if if you're growing in emotional freedom um, the sadness doesn't control you uh, it, it doesn't prevent you from still enjoying the family get-together and having you know this what seems to us a paradoxical experience of both I'm sad that the that this person's not here but I had a really great time with the people who are here and so emotional freedom means you're able to to various levels go to this family get together and and enjoy it to some degree while still having you know the feelings and but but you lived you, you engaged the moment um you know, if you think of it like reading a, a novel, um, as the story unfolds, you're, you know, you're, you're turning the pages, you're reading, turning the pages. When you get to the, the event that causes the grief, let's say the death of a loved one, it's like you're stuck on that page before, before there's emotional freedom. You're stuck on that page, and you're just reading the page over and over again. When, when freedom comes into the picture... Um, you're able to continue reading the story, uh, not to just ignore what happened, but you see, oh, this death is a part of a bigger story, and you've kind of integrated that that death or the grief into the bigger story, and you're able to continue um, reading. You're able to continue living. Um, so let's connect it to forgiveness. Um, you will still feel the hurt sometimes after forgiving uh, the person who hurt you. Um, but the hurt doesn't control you. It's no longer, it's no longer, you know, other ways we put it, it's no longer the uppermost thing in your mind. It's no longer the, the dominant narrative in your life. You, you learn how, how to engage life even while experiencing um, those episodes of, of hurt. You know, sometimes they come out of the blue. Sometimes, um, sometimes they last. Sometimes they're quick. Sometimes it lasts a little bit longer. But but you learn how to to live um, with sometimes feeling hurt. Um, this is what when we talk about emotional freedom, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about I forgave and. I've never thought about the offense again, and I always have this giant, you know, plastic smile on my face. And uh, no, freedom is is not the absence of of hurt feel, hurt feelings. Freedom is not always being controlled by them. So they you can experience them without them. Um, uh, controlling you like a, a puppet. So, emotional freedom, forgiveness and emotional freedom. Um, you know, there's a lot more that could be said there, but uh, those, those are kind of five, you know, um, handles for you to think about uh, what it means to, to experience emotional freedom after granting forgiveness. Um, we do have time, so I'm going to move on to the next one. Love covers a multitude of sins. Excuse me. 
love covers a multitude of sins. Um, what does it mean for, what does that mean? What does it mean for love to cover a multitude of sins? And how is that different from um, covering up sin? You know, either hiding sin or dismissing it, ignoring it, downplaying um, something somebody has done to you. Um, what is what is Peter talking about? So um, that phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, comes from 1 Peter 4.8. And the first thing I want to do, I'll try to do this quickly, um, is talk about the context. You know, whenever you read a Bible verse, it's important to understand the context. We tend to take a, a statement like this, especially because it's it's well known, it's it's you know memorable. Uh, we tend to take a statement like that and just kind of rip it out of its context and just treat it as this isolated theological nugget. And then when we do that, um, it's very easy to misinterpret the verse, misapply the verse, use it in a way that that God didn't intend it to be used. So um, what I want to do is just read First Peter four one through eight, and then talk real quickly about some of the context. So um, you can turn there in your Bibles or you can just listen, but um, stay with me. It's, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage. But 1 Peter 4, beginning of verse 1, he says uh, to the Christians to whom he's writing, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Uh, Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that although judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I'm not going to address that at all. That's very hard to understand. Verse 7, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, there's a lot there. But some key background for First Peter. Peter's writing to Christians, um, many of whom are suffering for being Christians, um, not necessarily being put to death, um, but um, they're experiencing social alienation, uh, verbal abuse. Peter talks about they malign you because you, you don't you know, participate in their, their sin. Um, there's lots of pressure to renounce Christ. Um, some may even be experiencing physical abuse, especially you know, uh, those who were slaves. Many of the early Christians were slaves. Um, no doubt many of them were, were harshly treated uh, by their masters. But, so Peter's writing to, to people in this situation, and he's, he's spent three chapters trying to help them understand, how, trying to help them think about their suffering process, uh, their suffering. He's, he's teaching them how to view it, um, how to endure it, how to uh, respond or not respond to it. And and after those, you know, three plus chapters of all that instruction, then comes this statement: "Love covers a multitude of sins," and it, it builds on everything that that has come uh, before. And when we get to um, 
this section, Peter is, is warning about the temptations that come to us when we're in the pressure cooker. You know, when we're, when we're being mistreated, when people are saying things about us that aren't true, when, um, when they're treating us like we're, you know, scum, when, um, when we're in this pressure cooker, he's, he's warning here in this section, here's, here's the, the, what you'll be tempted to do, here's the, the tendency we have. Um, so in verses 1 and 2, he says, it's better to suffer than to sin. In other words, um, not just in general, it's better to suffer, but he's saying when someone sins against you, don't respond in sin, with sin. So it's better, you know, if this person's mistreating you, it's better to um, honor Christ in your response than to respond in kind. might mean they keep saying the mean things about you, but it's better to, to uh, um, receive insults and, and express you know, love in return than, than to receive those insults uh, or than to sin. Um, verses 3 and 4, he talks about different ways um, we try to escape um, mentally and emotionally when life is hard. You know, um, the, it's not going our way and we might be tempted to um, just kind of pursue these, these other things to... Um, to escape the, the pain. And so that brings us to verse 7, where Peter talks about being self-controlled and sober-minded. So, um, you know, when suffering comes, we tend to run from something, run from the person who's hurting us, run from the pain, run from the reality. Um, we might turn to those things listed in verses 3 and 4. You know, they, they might hold out the promise of some kind of comfort or, or the ability to numb the pain, um, whatever. Um, self-control is the opposite of that. So self-control here, Peter says, you know, you're in this context of suffering, be self-controlled. In this context, it means turning to the Lord, not running from the problems to these other um, things. Uh, it means turning to the Lord. Uh, it looks like tenacious hope. You know, these things are happening and they're difficult and I hate them, but I'm going to continue hoping in the Lord. Um, it looks like patient endurance. That, that's what self-control. Peter's not talking about, you know, don't go back for seconds um, at, the, you know, at dinner time. I mean, maybe, maybe that's how you need to exercise self-control. Certainly how I need to exercise self-control. But, but he's talking here about, you know, not, um, not responding to sin with sin, not... Um, running from the Lord when life's difficult. Um, but he also talks about being sober-minded. Uh, sober-minded, which in this, con- this context would involve um, seeing clearly, thinking clearly, um, and maybe in this context um, resisting kind of the, the skepticism and cynicism I talked about earlier. You know, somebody close to you hurts you and you kind of you put on those mistrust sunglasses and, and now everyone is untrustworthy. Everyone is, um, everyone is uh, a threat. We assume the worst about people because there's some other people um, harming us. Uh, again, these are self-protection tactics. You know, if if I don't trust anyone, then I'm not at risk of getting burned again. But uh, those tactics end up um, trapping us. You know, we're we're just 
we are stuck in this place where we're we're bitter, we're we're angry, we're skeptical, cynical, uh, losing hope. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a ugly place to be. So that brings us to verse eight, and and I like the way. Brad Hambrick puts this. He says, forgiveness changes the dominant narrative. It changes the dominant narrative. So um, a good movie has multiple plot lines, right? Makes it interesting, kind of keeps you on your toes. You're guessing how this is going to unfold. A plot twist is when, you know, a, a minor theme in the story ends up becoming the, the main theme of the story. So let me give you an example. This will date me. And um, I am taking a risk now of being humiliated and rejected. But I'm going to take that risk because I know there's other geeks in here too. Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Came out in 1980. Really great year. Craig was born in that year. I was born in that year too. Darcy wasn't. She's, She's older. It's this ongoing joke. She, she's like three weeks older than I am, and it was a different decade. Okay, Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Um, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are, are engaged in this intense lightsaber duel. Do, do you remember this scene? And, you know, Darth Vader's the villain, Luke Skywalker's the young Jedi, the good guy. They're fighting. And, and towards the end of this, this duel scene, uh, Darth Vader just drops a bomb on, uh, metaphorically, on, on Luke Skywalker. He reveals that he is Luke's father. You, you know, you can hear James Earl Jones' voice, Luke, I'm your father. And, and you know, Luke screams this really f- funny scream, uh, no, no. <laughs> um, Luke had been told by his mentor that, that Darth Vader killed his father. And, and what his, his mentor didn't lie. He just kind of put things in a way that, that led Luke to believe that, that there were two different people, Darth Vader and his father. Turns out what, what his mentor meant is um, Luke's father, Anakin, gave in to the, the pool of the dark side and became Darth Vader and so the, the man who was Anakin doesn't exist anymore. There's only Darth Vader. That, so that's what he meant. That, um, are you rejecting me right now? Okay. <laughs> um, you know, that, that twist in the plot, I, I wish I was old enough to see that in, in the movie theaters, you know, having seen episode four and then episode five, and you're like, What? But that, that twist in the, in the story doesn't make the previous storyline untrue. Darth Vader is still a bad guy, even though he's Luke's father. Uh, he's still a threat to the galaxy, and Luke and Han and, and the others need to figure out what to do about it. But now we see that the story is a little more complex. There's, there's a lot more to this story than just you know good versus evil and um, you know, clear-cut bad guys and good guys. Um, now we're we're like, there's this bigger story we didn't know about. It's it's a story about a family that's that's now, you know, kind of turned against each other. 
Um, we're also thinking, well, if, if Darth Vader was once a good guy and became a bad guy, maybe he can go the reverse direction. Maybe, maybe he's going to become a good guy. Um, there's potential for something beautiful to develop. It, it, it didn't quite turn out exactly like that. But um, this is an aspect of what love covering a multitude of sins is about. And you might be thinking, how in the world does this have to do? What, is, what does Darth Vader have to do with this? Um, forgiveness changes the theme of our story. Forgiveness changes the theme of our story in two ways. Um, it changes the theme of our story from, from pain to grace and from isolation to community. So forgiveness changes the theme from pain to grace. Hambrick says, the main plot of pain becomes a preface to the plot twist of grace. The pain doesn't become untrue. It just serves to highlight the main plot. So... Um, I'm going to read you something else he said in a moment about this. But um, what that means is, yes, this this hurt happened, and it was wrong, it was painful, um, it, it had all kinds of consequences, but, but we've come to this place where forgiveness has been extended and it's been received, and, and now there's this story of God's grace coming into the pain and coming coming to change you know, the trajectory of, of this relationship and, and these individual lives and all that. So um, forgiveness introduces the, the plot twist of grace. That, that now becomes um, a bigger part of the story. And the pain, the pain doesn't disappear. It just is not the, the main thing any longer. So changes the theme of the story from pain to grace. Second way, it changes the theme of the story from isolation to community. Isolation to community. So uh, it's interesting that right after verse 8, where Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he immediately moves on to hospitality. Um, what is our natural instinct when people hurt us? Kind of talked about this already. Um, isolate. Um, Self-protect, uh, focus on yourself. Don't don't take those emotional relational risks. Um, again, it's understandable, but it often makes it always will to in some way make it make our situation worse. You know, if that's where we make our home, the isolation, self-protection. If we make our home there. Um, it's it's going to turn out badly for us. We we think it's it holds out the promise of being safe, but it's actually going to not work out very well. Um, in part because it adds, you know, you've not only got this hurt that's happened, but now you add to the mix loneliness and isolation. You know, the loss of community. You're like I, I'm not I'm not going to be a part of any more small groups because the people there were so judgmental and and they just really hurt me and I don't ever want to do that again and and you just you know I'll just watch church online because I don't want to interact with church people and um you know it, it sounds reasonable it sounds like yeah that's going to work out but but it doesn't um not if you make your home there um Hambrick says hospitality covers these sins and and not excuses them, 
But he says, caring for others and allowing others to care for you takes what was the main plot of pain and isolation and in a twist makes it a subplot to grace and community. So it it doesn't, forgiveness doesn't um, hide the sin or pretend like it never happened, but it it changes the story. And here's what he says. Um, Forgiveness is the plot twist that covers and what he means is it reinterprets, not hides the story of pain um, with a story of grace. So covering is not about like, well, you did this evil thing, but because I'm a Christian and Jesus says I'm supposed to love my enemies and forgive those who wrong me, I'm just going to pretend like that never happened. Um, no, Forgiveness, again, is saying what you did was so awful that it required Christ to die on the cross to pay for your sin. Um, Me saying I forgive you means I'm saying Christ paid for those sins. Um, Forgiveness reinterprets the story so that it's no longer a story only about pain, but it's a story about grace and community. And he, he goes on to say, even if it's unwise to open the door of relationship to the person who hurt you, and we, we've talked about how that sometimes is the case, even if it's unwise to, to open the door of relationship to the person who hurt you, forgiveness opens the door of relationship for you toward others. So again, if, if you know, you've, you've kind of moved out of this condition of unforgiveness, you've extended forgiveness wisely to someone who's wronged you, and is is repentant of their sins, it it gives you some degree of freedom to take those relational risks, to to go to a new small group and and put yourself out there that you're a Star Wars fan and, um, you know, or whatever the case might be. It it gives you some degree of freedom to, to engage other people, to pursue relationships without... Um, the sunglasses of mistrust. Not not being naive, but but also not being um, cynical and and skeptical of everyone and everything. Um, So, all right. uh, Emotional freedom and forgiveness. We talked about five five ways they relate. We talked a little bit about um, what it means for love to cover a multitude of sins. Uh, we could spend another hour here on, on this, but we're not going to. Um, we're going to wrap up next week. This, this right? Okay, I think it's next week. We're gonna we're gonna finish some more material next week. It might be the the last material we we talk about. Um, next time we're gonna talk about forgiveness and leaving room for God's wrath. So that's a statement that comes from Romans twelve nineteen. Um, where Paul's talking about, he's giving some relational um, counsel, and he talks about, you know, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with others, and then he also talks about not taking, uh, not retaliating against those who who harm you, but letting God deal with it. And he, he talks about leave room for the wrath of God. We're going to kind of explore, what, what is Paul talking about there? And then, um, hopefully get to um, a second topic, which is forgiveness and protecting other vulnerable people. So we'll explore a little bit um, about what that means. So again, um, I know Craig's held this out there. If you have questions about forgiveness, either material we've covered or some particular you know, situations you're trying to work through, feel free 
to reach out. Feel free to email us if they're just questions that maybe we might be able to address in class. You know, we'll try to do that. Um, but I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Our Father in heaven, I know that this topic brings up so many uh, feelings and questions for us. Uh, would you help us to um, think wisely about forgiveness? Would you help us to um, make progress if, if we are people who have been hurt and have um, maybe struggling to forgive or we have forgiven and, and still um, wrestling with, with pain and uh, we feel confused? Would you give us clarity? Would you give us um, a degree of emotional freedom that we would be able to rejoice in your grace and and see your grace as a, a bigger part of the story than just um, the pain that was inflicted on us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.